0: And chapter 11. <coughs> and I'll be reading verses one through six. The Gospel of John, chapter 11 and verses one through six. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, in the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. (coughs) Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in that place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Amen. Um, we're we're in, uh, th- This is part of Jesus' final um, ministry, uh, public ministry. After this, Jesus is going to turn and focus upon his disciples. Uh, John chapter 1 through John chapter 12, really, excuse me, through John chapter 12, (laughs) cover years. But after John chapter 12, the book of John slows down to a crawl and just covers a few weeks in the life of Jesus. And here, this is Jesus' seventh miracle. And it is the greatest miracle he performs. If you remember, throughout the previous chapters, Jesus has been reminding his disciples and everyone who could hear him, not only his disciples, he has been reminding them that he is the only one who can give eternal life. So for example, look just over at John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and verse 27 So there's this constant theme and refrain where Jesus himself is the source of eternal life or he can give eternal life. And he says in verse 27, "My sheep hear my voice, and I <coughs> and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life." and they shall never perish. This is a constant theme throughout the ministry of Jesus. Another theme is that Jesus' works testify to who he is. Jesus' works testify to who he is. The same uh, portion of John, look at verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe, uh, I told you who I am and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And climactically, in John chapter 11, Jesus puts this on display. Jesus puts on display that he can give life to the dead by raising a man from the dead and simultaneously is testifying that God is at work in him. Put it in another way, he's testifying that he's God. Jesus is able to give eternal life. And in doing this, God's glory is revealed. Now, in particular here, what Jesus has in mind when he says that this sickness is not unto death, but that the glory of God might be revealed, this is what he says to his disciples. What he means by that, the revelation of the glory of God here is the revelation or God's self-disclosure, God's revelation in the person of his son. If you want to know God, you must know Jesus. If you want to know God, the only place or the only person to go to is Jesus. He has come into this world to reveal God clearly to all who would believe. And this particular act of raising Lazarus from the dead puts a spotlight on the work of Christ and on the fact that he is the son of God. Now, to the passage. The Father's glory then is revealed in the work of Jesus. Jesus accomplishes, uh, in the work Jesus accomplishes, namely the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This ties together the truth that Jesus has been repeating in this gospel. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus' work. If you want eternal life, come to Jesus Christ. And if you do, you will see and know the glory of God in the person of his Son, in the Savior, Jesus. So first, verses 1 and 2. Sickness and disease is common to all men. This is a truth that um, we have to grasp tightly, (coughs) because the prosperity gospel, which is advertised on television and throughout the world, really primarily from America, it teaches that sickness, disease, difficulty in life is not for the Christian. That the Christian today can be freed from the power of those things because of what Christ has done. But this is contrary to what the Bible teaches. Uh, Christian men and women have suffered and they do suffer. Now, I'm, I'm using the word suffer uh, to... Um, Koftra, it's my daughter. Thank you. Um, I'm using the word suffering uh, to capture a broader scope. Uh, the focus, of course, here is the sickness, but um, it's uh, suffering is is common to all Christian people throughout the ages. In the past, I mean, just you think Abraham, he couldn't have a son. That was his greatest desire. Noah and uh, the difficulty that he went through preaching. He was a preacher of God's righteousness, and no one believed his message but those in his own household, and, and so on and so forth as you go through your Bibles. David, the death of his son, <laughs> multiple sons, the division of the kingdom and all of the things that he saw during his day. Great difficulty. <coughs> Job and everything that he suffered. And the word used here for sick is just, the common word. Um, so for example, in Luke 440 is they brought those who were sick with various diseases to Jesus and he healed them. So it's a common word. He had a sickness. Lazarus was from the town of Bethany and he had two sisters, Mary and Martha. We don't know much about Lazarus. This is all really we're told. And then in chapter 12, we're told that everybody wanted to kill him because Jesus raised him from the dead. Um, Bethany would now bring Jesus south again. If you look at the end of chapter 11, (coughs) look at the end of, excuse me, the end of chapter 10. I apologize. Uh, Verse 39. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. So Jesus heads north. And he's heading north to get away from Jerusalem because the, the Jewish leaders want to kill him now. And his ministry, his mission is not accomplished. He needs to spend some time with his disciples. But now as he hears about the death of uh, or the sickness, and he knows he's going to die, the death of Lazarus, now he heads back south into that region. And that is what, why Thomas says in verse 16 of chapter 11, let us go that we may die with him. Because he thinks if we head back south, they're going to capture Jesus and they're going to kill him. So he's willing to head into danger. This chapter, as I said, it closes Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of John. And this miracle would be really the, the final straw for the religious leaders. You would think that it wouldn't. But it would be the complete opposite. The religious leaders would see Jesus, raise this man from the dead, and say, okay, well, we've been wrong here all along. But no, the unconverted heart is set upon uh, enmity with God. It's hostile to him. Apart from the saving grace of God. Mary and Martha, um, there's a small illustration of their attitudes, uh, sort of their their character in Luke chapter 10. (coughs) And if you would, uh, please turn there just so you can see. So we don't know too much about Lazarus, but we know a little bit about Martha and Mary. If you look to Luke chapter 10, verse 38. (coughs) It appears also that Mary may have had a bit of a closer relationship with Jesus than, um, than Martha did. Luke ten thirty eight. Now, it happened as they went that Jesus entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. So she was very interested in Jesus' teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, <laughs> "This this is kind of funny, because I have daughters, and I could see something like this happening, right? <laughs> you have one daughter who's busy, she's, you know, fixing everything making sure that everybody's got drinks and food and it's comfortable and cleaning up after everybody and you've got one who's just sitting there listening to Jesus teach and the one who's busy doesn't think to herself well that's wonderful you know she's listening to Jesus she thinks I'm gonna tell on her because I'm tired (laughs) so um, Martha goes to the Lord and she tells him Lord do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? You don't care? I'm here, you know, just serving, serving, uh, serving everybody? Is it my, my work, you know, my, this important thing that I'm doing? Therefore, tell her to help me. Tell her to stop listening and to start working. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part, which is, which will not be taken from her. You know, those plates and those dishes and those cups, you won't take them to heaven, but everything that I've taught you, you will. So, very important, very important truth, and you see there are different personalities. Martha is, appears to be very hardworking, diligent to the point of being distracted, where in turn, Martha is, uh, Mary is very devoted to the teaching of Christ, very interested in the teaching of our Lord. And we're told in verse 2 that it was Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. So she was very devoted to Christ. And this probably was her life savings, which she poured out on the Lord. We'll take a look at that in chapter 12 in more detail. Now... Um, point of application here, knowing Christ and being loved by him, which we're told in this chapter that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He he loved them. Knowing Christ and being loved by Christ does not spare us from suffering in this life. Suffering, sickness, on the other hand, suffering, sickness, disease, is not a sign of God's displeasure either. God wasn't displeased with Lazarus. that's, That's not why he was sick. As J.C. Ryle puts it, sickness, but sickness, we must always remember, is no sign that God is displeased with us. Nay, more, it is generally sent for the good of our souls. How could it be for the good of our souls? Because it tends to draw our affections away from this world. Right? You realize how weak you are physically anyways, and now even weaker and with less strength. And you begin to long for Heaven. Oh man, I can't wait for that day when I put off this body of death. It is generally sent for the good of our souls. It tends to draw our affections away from this world and to direct them to the things above. It's, <clears throat> it sends us to our Bibles, right? <clears throat> we want to know what God has to say to us. Is, is the Lord angry? Is he pleased? What ought I to do with, with this suffering and this disease and this sickness? It sends us to our Bibles and teaches us to pray better. It helps us to prove our faith and patience and shows us the real value of our hope in Christ. How does Paul say it in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 19? He says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. But we aren't, right? So, so even when we're sick, we, we can remember. And even if we're deadly sick, We can remember that the real value of our hope is in Christ, not in our physical health, not in our well-being, not in the well-being of others. Now, and and those who are um, uh, uh, struggling because they have family members who are sick, we have to remember also that um, this is for our good too that we may learn how to serve and love and care for others in their time of need and in their time of despair. I love the way that um, Hercules Collins puts this. It's really the um, Heidelberg Catechism, but it puts it this way. It says, Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven, earth, and all creatures, and so rules them, That leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to pass, do not come to pass by chance, but from God's fatherly hand. Everything that happens to us in our life comes to us from God. Now, that's a difficult thing to take because many of us suffer various things. Great difficulties. Physical difficulties, spiritual difficulties, relational difficulties, financial difficulties. But remember Jesus' words. Speaking to his disciples in John 10, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your heavenly Father's will. He's saying to them, look, uh, uh, <clears> at." <throat> This creature, who is relatively insignificant in its value and in its worth, God takes note when that creature dies. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows how many hairs you have and how many hairs you had. <laughs> you know, per- perfectly, right? That That is how concerned he is with you. Look, when you're... Uh, um, when you're attracted to, to, uh, to another person, you note things that you don't know about other people. A freckle, a dimple, you know, uh, 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 what, whatever it might be, right? Some, some, some characteristic that other people won't pick up on. Why? Because you're, you're enamored with them. You, you stare at them, you, you're looking, right? You're, um, so you will notice particular things. God loves his people so much that he is in control of every detail of their life and knows them more intimately than anybody else. He says in verse 31, do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than many, than all the sparrows. The son of God, now now, now consider this also, as we think about ourselves in this world and, and God's care and concern for us, we have to think about this. God's son was not spared suffering and hardship in this fallen world. When Jesus came into this world, he wasn't born on a golden throne with, you know, leather padded coverings. No, he was born in a manger and he didn't live a life of ease. What does the Bible say? He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He had a hard, difficult life. And even as we've been reading the Gospel of John, the amount of persecution that Jesus receives is unparalleled. And what is he doing? Nothing to offend men. Everything to save them. Nothing to offend. Everything to save. And they hate him. He suffered great difficulty. He suffered death. Even the death of Lazarus was sorrowful to him. You see, he's, this, this is a man whom Jesus loved. So Jesus suffered in his life. And he then becomes our example. The one to whom we look to in this world. So the author to the book of Hebrews reminds us. He says that the way that we ought to live in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the way that we ought to live is looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Right? You have this, there was a point of suffering in the life of Jesus, a great point of suffering, which was the cross. And he knew that the cross was coming. And yes, all of the physical pain and the shame involved on the cross, you have to remember that he would, he would, he would be savagely beaten and then crucified naked in broad day. Great shame and disrespect that he received upon that cross. But he saw the cross, and what he did was he looked to the other side of the cross and to the joy that lay behind that great difficulty. And that's what we ought to do to the great joy that is set before us. And what does he do? He despises the shame. The shame maybe of of some physical handicap that we may have, right, or some physical disease or some impairment that we might have, it may cause us to be ashamed. And what we ought to do is despise that shame. Well, I, I I reject to feel shame for the providence of God in my life, for the difficulties that I'm going through. I will not be ashamed of those things. And has sat down at the right hand of God. He continues in verse 3 of chapter 12 of Hebrews. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Consider him. Think about him. Right When you're going through difficulty, turn your attention to your Lord. Right, Jesus said, a disciple is not greater than his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you also. Right. If Christ suffered... We'll suffer also in this world, maybe not to the same degree. Every one of us is, God deals with us uh, exactly where we are. He knows exactly what we need, how much pain, suffering, joy, so that we may be sanctified, so that we, we may become greater dependent upon his mercy. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against him, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. There's a purpose to it. This is not just um, the pastor is looking for points of application. God commands us to do this in his word. We ought to look at our circumstances and difficulties, then look at Christ and say to ourselves, a, we can't compare. I'll, keep, I'll continue then. You have not resisted to, sh- sh- to bloodshed. Striving against sin. So these are things that we have to remember. (coughs) Difficulties also help purge us from sin. When when you're suffering and you're a Christian person, your attention then turns to God. And you begin to just put off sin, anger, bitterness, hostility towards others. You, You put those things off the closer you're drawn to God. It also sanctifies you. You you then seek more intimacy with the Lord. You want his ear and you desire his favor. It also makes you dependent upon him. When you see your weakness and your inability, you think to yourself, man, I need God. It causes us to long for heaven. This is not to make light of suffering. That's not the point. Suffering is suffering. There, There are people in this world who really are suffering. Great difficulties, losses, like Mary and Martha experience. But we have to put our life in biblical context. What the Bible teaches has to become, in essence, the guardrails that helps us to examine and determine what's going on in our life. Think about this. This is a silly illustration, but let's say your kid comes home from school, and he just looks beat, I mean, he's exhausted. He's red like a, one of these chairs. He's full of dirt. He wakes up in the morning. He's sore. One Friday, he comes home with a sprained ankle. And you're thinking to yourself, what is this kid doing at school? I had no idea. So you call up the school and, you oh, yeah, he's playing football. He's actually the best kid we got. You didn't know? What would you say when he comes home bruised, bloodied, and beat up? it changes your perspective. You don't think anymore, somebody's abusing my kid at the school over here. No, you think to yourself, there's a purpose to this. He's committed himself to something and there's a goal. So that when we, when we see ourselves in the midst and others in the midst of difficulty, what the Bible will have us do is, no, there's a, there's a purpose to this. Now, on this side of heaven, we see dimly. We don't always have the answer at hand right? God's not going to tell us, oh, um, I caused this difficulty for this specific purpose. We may never see it that way. In heaven, we'll know clearly. But what we can do is trust upon the character of our God. What kind of God do we serve? Is he faithful? Is he just? Is he merciful? Is he kind? Yes, he has displayed all of these things preeminently at the cross. Therefore, we allow the character of God to determine how we interpret our circumstances, not the other way around. There is a purpose. We see it now dimly, but then we'll see it better and greater. Next, look at what happens here in verse 3. They go through great difficulty, and immediately, what is their response? Therefore, the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. In times of difficulty, we must turn to Christ. That's what we must do. In their time of need, whom did they turn to? When they had no power to effect any change in their brother's condition, whom did they seek? Christ. And that's what we have to learn how to do. You know, uh, maybe the American mindset, maybe it's my parents' immigrant mindset, but whenever I go through any difficulty, I immediately think to myself, I can fix this. I don't need anybody's help. I'm going to do it. Well, you know, it doesn't matter what happens. I'll figure it out. But that that kind of um, self-reliance isn't helpful. First and foremost, we have to learn that we are dependent upon the Lord, and we ought to learn to be dependent upon one another. Not so that we become lazy ourselves, but really so that we look at our lives and say, you know what? I can't fix this. This is too much for me, or I just don't understand how to do this or how to resolve this problem. Where do I go? Of course, to God and to Christ. Now, the hymn writer says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And what he means by that little phrase there, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. What he means is the, is, uh, the, the nicest, strongest, if you think about a bridge, right? If you had a little rope bridge and then right next to it, you have this bridge that, I mean, steel, reinforced concrete blocks. Which one are you using? That solid one. And what he's saying is it it doesn't matter in this world what looks strong, right? Oh, um, what looks strong and confident, the, the thing that we ought to be leaning upon constantly is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our desire or our initial response in difficulty should always be like the psalmist does in Psalm 27, 8. The Lord says, seek my face. My heart said to you, Your face I will seek. That's what we ought to do in great difficulty is seek the Lord, pursue him. Next, next. When Jesus heard that, he said, uh, excuse me. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And Jesus loved Mary and Martha, loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in that place where he was. And you think to yourself, he should have left right away. Well, he was two days away anyways. From where he was, Jesus was two days away. And um, he would have gotten there too late. Lazarus would have already been dead. And we know this from the location where Jesus was. He was where John was baptizing. And from where John was baptizing to this Bethany was a two days walk. So Lazarus would have been dead. Why did he take so long? Well, one of the reasons was because of Jewish superstition. And this isn't in the Bible at all, but this is something that the Jews believed. The Jews believed that the soul of a person would... Uh, leave the body when they died, and kind of hang out for three days, just, you know, in the general area. Don't know why they believe this, but this is what they thought. And Jesus was probably familiar with this tradition and thought to himself, if I go and raise him now, they'll think, well, yeah, his, you know, soul is just hovering around. So Jesus actually waits four days before he arrives. So that there could be no question, oh, he raised, they, they have to say, he raised him from the dead. <laughs> Jesus knows when it's best for us to be delivered from adversity. And if we can grasp this truth, it'll help us endure many great trials. We think to ourselves always, you know, God, I need this Now. I need a wife. I need a husband. I need a raise. I need this sickness to stop. I need you to heal my relative now. And at times Jesus will silently say, no, not now. And we need to learn how to trust. He is wiser than we are. He knows what we need more than we do. He's not abandoning us. What does he say to his disciples in the Gospel of John? I'll not leave you alone. I'm going to come to you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. J.C. Raw writes The things that come to pass in your life are not a mistake. God is a seamstress, and he has woven. Or you could say a tailor, but he has woven or he is weaving the tapestry of your life exactly as he sees best. And God does all things well. There's no mistakes. What these instances ought to do is cause us to grow in our dependence and trust on God. Jesus is too wise a physician to make a mistake, there's no mistakes. Stop making any mistakes with your life. Your life is in the palm of his hand. What does he say in John chapter 10? Not one of these sheep, anybody's going to take them out of His hand. And that's how he holds every last single one of us in our greatest adversities. So brothers and sisters, in light of these things, let us uh, give glory to God. Let us be thankful for his grace towards us. And let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness revealed to us in Christ. We thank you for your care for us, even in the midst of great difficulty, Lord, difficulties that we might not even be able to explain, maybe things that we're suffering alone. Lord, you know them. And we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to look to you, to look to your character, a gracious, merciful, and kind God, And then to look to your son who endured great difficulty. And then to depend upon the spirit to sanctify and perfect us in the midst of these trials. We ask that we would learn, Lord, to call upon you and to lean upon you and your people as we go through difficulty. And may we, Lord, be a source of of encouragement for one another as we walk through this uh, valley of death. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Please stand and sing the doxology with me. (laughs) you <laughs>